Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. It's my first time presenting in two months. I've never taken two months off in, in like five years. Before we get started, I wanted to uh, just on a personal note, say happy birthday to my daughter, whose uh, birthday is today. That's Sarah. She's turning 24. And uh, last Monday was my son Charlie's birthday. He turned 18. So, you know, you're getting old when your kids are getting old. That's kind of scary. Uh, as always, I like to open up our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. Um, in addition to the 467 surety in-house claims handlers who called in live so far in 2021, an additional 2,162 have downloaded an episode uh, of the podcast this year and over 5,754 all time. So again, thank you uh, for your support and we ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. We've given out, uh, I think, like 400 pins, and uh, we had to go get another uh, batch of pins to, to keep going forward. So uh, have people call in or send me an email, and we'll get them all set up. Remember, you can listen to any one of our or all of our prior 64 episodes of Surety Today anytime, anywhere, from any one of our multiple platforms, the Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today. And, and on our microsite at suretytoday.net. Um, as always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and then we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today we'll be discussing the sureties takeover options. Depending on the language and conditions in the performance bond, when the principal has been declared in default and the obligee has terminated the principal and made demand on the surety to perform under the performance bond, the surety typically has several performance options, which generally include, of course, financing the principal, uh, take over and complete, tender a completion contractor, allow the obligee to perform, buy out the bond, or deny liability outright in whole or part. Today, uh, as I say, we're going to be discussing the, the takeover option. At its essence, the takeover is relatively straightforward, right? The surety determines the remaining scope of work, the remaining contract balance, the time to complete, and obtains a, a completion contractor to perform the work. However, as they say, the devil is in the details. As part of the takeover process, the surety typically negotiates and enters into a takeover agreement with the obligee, in which it is agreed that the surety uh, through its completion contractor, will undertake to complete the remaining work in accordance with the applicable contract documents. A takeover differs from a, a tender because in a takeover, the surety enters into the agreement directly with the obligee to complete the remaining work, whereas in a tender, a completion contractor is provided to the obligee and the obligee enters directly into contract with the tendered contractor 
and the surety and its bonds are off on their merry way, having been released. Uh, there is a small matter of having to pay the differential, but uh, the takeover and completion of defaulted projects by the surety is common. Uh, the right to takeover can be found in the language of the bond, in the FAR regulations, and such right has been uh, recognized at common law. In the right circumstances, it can be the most expeditious, practical, and cost-effective of the surety options, and the one most preferred by and generally most familiar to the obligee. There are a number of typical advantages associated with a takeover, some of which include the following. In a takeover, the surety gets to control the completion process in general. The ability, it has the ability to select the, the completing contractor and consultants to perform and monitor the cost and progress and make sure that the surety is only paying for what was originally required in the bonded contract. In some instances, the surety may have the ability to reduce its cost by using the principal's employees, which can give some continuity, uh, some project knowledge and history, for example. In, in some instances, the surety can utilize the resources of the indemnitors through various provisions uh, in the indemnity agreement. The surety can gain protection through the requirement of bonds from the completing contractor. Ratification of existing subcontractors and suppliers uh, can help with completion use of the principal's equipment, tools, and materials to complete is also an advantage to taking over for the surety. There are also a number of potential risks and disadvantages associated with a takeover, some of which include additional fees and supervision costs and requirements, some of which may not count towards reducing the penal sum, the possibility that the obligee may assert change orders or that the project schedule may get dragged out, the possibility that product manufacturer warranties may not be available, latent defects in warranty work can crop up, delay damages, LDs, and uh, actions by the obligee, owner, or other contractors that cause damage and increased costs to the surety's performance, leading to claims and disputes. Perhaps one of the biggest risks for the surety in the takeover performance option is the possibility of exposure beyond the penal sum of the bond. Some courts have taken the position that the penal sum of the bond does not operate to limit the surety's liability when the surety elects to take over and complete. The case of International Fidelity Insurance Company versus County of Rockland uh, out of the Southern District of New York in 2000 illustrates the risk of exposure beyond the penal sum of the bond. In Rockland, the county awarded a contract to a company named Nanco for the build-out of the ninth floor of the Jaeger Health Center, a county-owned nursing facility in New York. Nanco obtained payment and performance, performance bonds from IFIC for the project, which were issued on a 1984 AIA A312 bond form. Subsequently, the county declared Nanco in default, and IFIC exercised its option under the performance bond to, quote, undertake to perform and complete the construction contract itself through its agents or through independent contractors, unquote. If IFIC and the county entered into a takeover agreement in which IFIC agreed to complete the remaining work in accordance with the construction contract, takeover agreement provided that all of the terms of the underlying construction contract were incorporated into the takeover agreement by reference. The takeover agreement also provided that nothing in it affected any of the rights and obligations of IFIC or the other parties under the terms of the construction contract or under the performance bond issued there under by IFIC. Thereafter, IFIC engaged Karani, 
contracting corporation to complete the project and entered into a completion contract with Hirani, under which Hirani agreed to complete all work under the contract. Pursuant to the requirements of its completion agreement with IFIC and as security for the performance of the completion agreement, Hirani obtained payment and performance bonds from Fidelity and Guarantee as surety, naming IFIC as the obligee. Hirani was not able to get the work done by the agreed-upon completion date. However, the county agreed to extend that date. Hirani continued to work for a period of time, but then filed bankruptcy. IFIC made demands on Hirani and F&G to complete the work, but the work was not completed. The county gave IFIC notice that it intended to terminate it for its failure to cure. However, the county subsequently permitted IFIC to finish the project with yet another contractor. Prior to substantial completion, the county served IFIC with a notice of claim for alleged delay damages and LDs caused by the surety during the takeover, totaling over $4 million. This claim exceeded the penal sum of the bond. After final completion of the project, the county served IFIC with a more detailed analysis of the claim. In response, IFIC filed suit seeking compensatory damages against the county for monies alleged to be due to IFIC under the takeover agreement and seeking a declaratory judgment. The county, of course, filed its counterclaim against IFIC for the delay damages in the LDs, and IFIC filed a claim over against F&G, the uh, Hirani surety. IFIC filed a motion for summary judgment seeking, among other things, that the court limit IFIC's liability to the county to the penal sum of the performance bond that IFIC issued to NANCO. In analyzing the, the, the delay claims against IFIC, which related to IFIC's performance under the takeover agreement, the court stated that the penal limit of the bond did not apply. Now, the court pointed to three different justifications for its conclusion. First, the 1984 A312 bond form did not specifically limit the surety's liability to the penal sum when the delay damages were caused by the surety. The court observed that the provision limiting the surety's obligation, quote, to the limit of the amount of this bond, unquote, only addressed completion costs and principal cause delay damages. Of course, one of the modifications that would later be made uh, in the 2010 version of the A312 was to exclude the takeover op option from the, the protection of the penal limit of the bond altogether. Uh, if George were here uh, now, he would tell us his story of the time he randomly sat down next to one of the drafters of the 2010 A312 bonds on a flight returning from a surety conference. So they got to talking and figured out who each other were. And, and he asked this guy, well, wh why did you exclude the takeover option from the penal sum after, you know, going back and forth? The guy finally said, look, it's no big deal because the surety's always put a penal sum limitation into the takeover agreement. I mean, that's the dumbest thing I think I've ever heard uh, for somebody who's probably very smart. For one thing, adding a penal sum limitation is not always acceptable to an obligee, particularly when it's not required in the bond form itself, thanks to the AIA. And as we will discuss in a minute, sometimes the limitations provision that, that does get put into a takeover agreement is not enforced by the courts. So second, uh, the second justification for, for the Rockland court's position that, uh, that, the, that the surety's liability was not limited to the penal sum, the court pointed to, quote, unquote, long established case law holding that a surety's takeover of its principal's contract pursuant to a performance bond, quote, always subjects the surety to liability beyond the penal limit of the bond. I don't know what this court was looking at. 
court made reference to a handful of cases to support its statement, some of which amount to nothing more than passing statements in dicta. In fact, there's no long-established case law on the issue, and courts do not always subject the surety to liability beyond the penal sum and takeovers. Indeed, the opposite is true. Courts typically limit the surety's liability to the penal sum, and that has historically been the case. The Rockland Court stated, quote, in short, there is a distinction in liability between, on the one hand, those cases in which the surety takes over completion of the contract by stepping into the shoes of the contractor, in which case the surety's liability is equal to what the contractor's liability would be, and on the other hand, those cases in which the surety chooses simply to pay off its obligation to the obligee or deny liability, in which case its liability is generally limited to the penal sum of the bond, unquote. What the court overlooks is the fact that a, a takeover is nothing more than a method of performance under the bond. And as such, it must be limited to the penal sum of the bond in the absence of language in the bond to the contrary. Of course, under a, a takeover, the surety is liable for damages caused during the takeover process, but that damage should be capped at the penal sum, similar to a damage waiver or a limitation provision in a typical contract. The whole reason the surety got involved and the whole reason that its bond has a penal limit is because that's the cap on its liability. Allowing exposure above the penal sum of the bond unfairly and unjustly equates a surety's legitimate performance under the bond with things like bad faith for failure to perform. So the final, the final basis for the court's position was purportedly found in New York statutory law under then existing New York general obligation law section 7301. The statute specifically limited a surety's liability to the penal sum of the bond if it chooses to pay, but the statute was silent in the event that a surety chooses to perform rather than pay. Without citation to authority, the court construed that as intent of the legislature not to apply the penal limit to the takeover surety. The fact is, that's not what it says. So, so you know, the court's sort of grabbing, grabbing at straws here to support its view. In apparent good news in the Rockland court case, uh, the court seemed to acknowledge that a surety could protect itself from exposure beyond the penal sum of the bond by including a clause in the takeover agreement that limits the surety's liability in the course of performance to the original bond penalty. In Rockland, IFIC did include a provision in its takeover agreement with the county seeking to limit its liability to the penal sum. However, the Rockland court narrowly construed that provision, stating that the dispute was not about funds advanced by the surety to complete the contract and reduction of the penal sum. It was about loss of income to the county caused by IFIC's breach and the extent to which IFIC must reimburse them for that loss. The court noted that the provision did not include an absolute limitation on liability to the penal sum of the bond, nor was there any limitation regarding liability for delayed damages caused by the surety's delayed performance of the takeover agreement. The takeover agreement's reservation of rights uh, provision was also not uh, specific enough for the court. Thus, the penal sum was not the limit of the surety's liability in that case. In another case, the Lux Building Systems Inc. versus Constructamax Inc. out of uh, the District of New Jersey, 2013, the takeover agreement contained a clause stating as follows, quote, nothing contained in this takeover agreement is intended or shall be construed to waive or to increase the liability of the surety beyond the limit of the surety's liability under the bond or any other defenses to liability set forth in the bond owner shall not make any claim against the surety or demand damages or performance from the surety 
after the surety has expended or obligated itself to expend the remaining penal sum of the bond, unquote. Despite what appears to be clear language to me, the court would not grant summary judgment in spite of this provision because claims of liquidated damages and delay damages were asserted. The Constructamax court pointed to an alleged distinction between claims against the surety under the bond and claims for the surety's breach of the takeover agreement. The court also looked to indemnity provisions of the underlying construction contract and alleged inconsistencies with other provisions in the takeover agreement to find a dispute of fact. Of course, there are many cases that hold the penal sum to be the limit of the surety's liability. For example, the Allegheny Casualty Company versus Archer Western Demaria Joint Venture out of the uh, Middle District of Florida, 2014, uh, and that and the cases that they cite there. Um, Bruner and O'Connor also discusses this issue. The takeaway here is that the takeover surety must be extremely sensitive to the exposure above the penal sum issue and make sure that it includes a broad limitation of liability provision that encompasses potential exposure under the bond and takeover agreement, and that the limitation provision includes damages that cover more than just completion costs and specifically mentions delay damages and liquidated damages. In states where incorporation by reference obligates the surety to, uh, to indemnity obligations in the underlying contract, the limitation provision in the takeover agreement should also address such terms that may be incorporated by reference. The surety should also endeavor to minimize any conflicting provisions in the takeover agreement. For example, if there is a provision stating that the surety uh, will be, could be liable for liquidated damages for delay and performance of the takeover, a proviso should be added referring to the penal sum limitation provision in that in that specific provision regarding liquidated damages, just to make it clear and consistent. So let's look at some other issues here when you're, when you're in the takeover process. Um, as with any of the surety's performance options, before the surety goes down the takeover path with an obligee after a principal's default termination, the surety must obtain some critical information uh, concerning the bonding contract, such as the remaining scope of work, the status of the bonding contract funds, and the time of completion. Time of completion can often be, can often be a, a point of contention and will need to be negotiated and addressed in any takeover agreement. Typically, the completion contractor will provide an estimate of time that it believes it will take to complete the remaining scope of work, and that will be used as the new completion date in the takeover agreement. Usually, the new completion date will be further out than the original scheduled completion date. This delta gives rise to a potential claim for liquidated damages against the surety. In addition, in some cases, uh, the principal may have been behind schedule at the time of the default, and LDs may have already been incurred when the surety gets involved. Many times the obligee will readily agree to waive uh, liquidated damages or other delay costs in exchange for the surety's agreement to take over and complete. Other times, LDs can become a sticking point that must be negotiated. In some instances, the obligee will say things like, well, we don't have the authority to waive LDs, or, or they'll, they'll need to go to a higher authority to get LDs waived. The surety's response that often works the best is to point out that LDs don't need to be waived. All the obligee needs to do is grant a non-compensatory time extension. A time extension will have the effect of erasing the delay and any LDs associated with it. Most obligees have the authority at the project level to adjust the schedule and recognize excusable delays. If there needs to be a fight over LDs, I, I recommend that you check out our prior uh, surety episode 
Surety Today episode on liquidated damages where we um, presented on August 13, 2018 for a discussion of the various defenses that can be asserted to eliminate or mitigate LDs. Of course, as a practical matter, if there's a fight over LDs in the takeover negotiation phase, it might be a red flag suggesting that taking over the project is not a good idea. Uh, remaining contract funds, one of the other issues that, that has to be addressed. Typically, the principal will have performed some portion of the online contract and will have been paid some portion of the contract funds prior to its termination. Uh, accordingly, in the takeover process, the surety will need to determine what the remaining contract funds are, are for the project. The amount of remaining funds is critical because the amount is ultimately used to determine the excess cost of completion and the amount the surety will have to pay out of pocket as part of the takeover process to its completion contractor. Contract balance is generally a function of calculating the present amount of the contract, the original contract price plus or minus the value of approved change orders and modifications, less the obligee's payments already made. You would think that determining the, the remaining contract balance would be simple and straightforward, but sometimes, especially when dealing with a general contractor as the obligee, it can become an issue. For example, the obligee may claim deductions from the contract balance for back charges, supplementation, the ubiquitous cleanup charges, deductive or unilateral change orders, et cetera. On the other hand, the, the principal may be contending that it has extra work on approved change orders or claims that should be part of the contract balance. These issues will all need to be sorted out in the negotiation process to determine the amount of the remaining funds. It's such a critical issue. Uh, you got to get as close to the bottom of it as you can. Now, I had a case where we were getting ready to sign a takeover agreement with an obligee when the obligee added a provision regarding alleged water damage. No information had been provided on this alleged damage previously. Ultimately, the obligee provided information, and it was $250,000 in alleged damages, which was more than the remaining contract funds. Obviously, that uh, derailed the process. Uh, so the next, next issue that has to be looked at for the takeover process is the scope of work. Determining the remaining scope of work is essential in the takeover process. The obligee, the surety, the surety's consultant, the eventual completion contractor may encounter the most disputes surrounding this issue. The obligee will want to ensure that all of the remaining scope of work under the contract will be performed. The surety wants to ensure that it correctly identifies the remaining scope of work so that it gets accurate bids and costs to complete from its completion contractors. The more comfortable the completion contractor is regarding the scope, the larger the, pre the, larger, the more uncomfortable, uh, the larger the premium will be charged. Obviously, the surety wants to avoid scope gaps that will later lead to change orders from the completion contractor and more money out of the surety's pockets. So in analyzing the remaining scope of work, there are basically four broad categories you've got to address. Uh, the remaining unperformed work that is described uh, in the underlying contract, including the approved submittals, addenda, approved change orders, and modifications. In its analysis, the surety should attempt to have the obligee affirm that the work performed to date has met the contract requirements, or if there are any known issues to specifically identify those issues. We had a project where the principal had been on the job for over a year, over half of the contract funds had been paid out. We assembled a bunch of potential completion contractors, we went to the project site with the representative of the obligee to view the site, which was the Corps of Engineers, by the way, <clears throat> to review the site. And when one of the prospective bidders asked, uh, well, what's the percentage of the work that had been approved, the obligee represented, representative said none. <laughs> After that, 
Many of the bidders refused to bid. Others inflated their bids to ridiculous amounts. That necessitated, of course, a lengthy letter from me to the obligee advising, among other things, that if over half the contract funds had been paid out and none of the work had been approved, the obligee had seriously overpaid and impaired the surety's rights. Subsequently, the obligee approved the majority of the work and we got new bids. Um, the second category of work that you have to look at uh, when you're analyzing the scope of work is the um, patently defective work on the, that the principal has performed and that the completion contractor is going to have to correct. Um, that's, that's something that, you know, you just have to be careful, go out there, the, the completion contractor has to inspect and, um, and get that down as accurately as you can in order to keep the price in check. The more accurate the analysis of the, of the defective work that's patent, the lower the completion bid premium and cost. The third category is, of course, latent defective work performed by the principal. Uh, because the definition of latent defects are that they're unknown, this category can provide the most concern to the surety and the completion contractor. One way to deal with this uh, unknown is to agree in advance with the completion contractor as to uh, unit prices for remediation and an acceptable time and material framework for such remediation. The fourth category um, is warranty work that may subsequently have to be performed within the bonded contract warranty period. Um, so the scope of work issues can be, can be a complicating factor in any takeover, not just in how to deal with it going forward, but in determining whether to take over at all. One uh, potential impediment uh, that a surety may encounter when negotiating with a governmental obligee is the misbelief that the obligee must comply with public competitive bidding requirements before it can execute a direct contract with the surety. The surety's response to this impediment is that the contract was already publicly bid out once and awarded to the surety's now terminated principal. The surety is paying the price uh, increase difference due to the com uh, completion contractor's price, and the public owner is not obligated for any cost beyond the original contract price. So no additional public funds are required. Further, under general suretyship law, sureties are afforded the opportunity to perform under the performance bond, and a takeover constitutes such performance and is therefore not a new procurement and not subject to the competitive bidding requirements. It is simply performance under the bond. Finally, even public owners have an obligation to mitigate damages, and accepting the, the takeover in most circumstances would be considered mitigation of damages. Another issue to keep in mind uh, in a takeover is how to handle the penal sum. One issue that should be addressed in the takeover agreement is the issue of what counts toward the penal sum and what does not. The surety will likely have pre-default or pre-takeover agreement costs and expenses related to the project, including council fees, consultant fees, maybe some payroll funding, uh, payments to sub-suppliers to keep them on the job. Will such costs be deducted from the penal sum or not? It's better to get the issue sorted out and agreed to in advance rather than at the end of the process where the surety assert, asserts that it has reached the penal sum of the bond and is ending performance and have the obligee contend that the various charges to the penal sum were improper and there is still penal sum left to perform. This dispute played out in the Allegheny Casualty Company case uh, from the Middle District of Florida uh, that I mentioned earlier. The obligee there asserted that only expenditures properly made for proper performance of the subcontract can be charged against the penal sum, and in any case, only costs accrued after the default can be charged against the penal sum. The obligee's expert pointed to various alleged unreasonable and excessive costs incurred by the surety during its performance of the subcontract, including 
utilization of a contractor on a time and material basis rather than obtaining a subcontractor on a lump sum basis, costs related to a consultant's travel back and forth to his home in another state each weekend, costs related to the extra time needed to repair the completion contractor's own defective work. After accounting for the alleged improper costs, the obligee contended that the surety's proper expenditures did not in actuality exceed the penal sum. Now, this involves several hundreds of thousands of dollars on this particular project. Um, the surety's expert, of course, disagreed, found all the charges were proper. Because of the, the, the conflicting opinions of the party's experts, the court concluded that uh, general issues of material fact existed as to whether the surety exhausted or exceeded the penal sum, and summary judgment could not be granted. So it's good to get that issue um, squared away in the takeover agreement and have the fight uh, up front with the obligee about what's going to be included as a reduction of the penal sum and, and what will not. Um, there's, of course, a long list of, um, of items. See, in addition to negotiating a takeover agreement with the obligee in a, in a takeover performance option, surety must also negotiate a completion contract with a completion contractor. And, and there are many issues uh, to consider and the and provisions that should be addressed in the completion contractor's agreement including such things as um, the completion time and assigning responsibility for liquidated damages as between the surety and the completed contractor. The agreement should delineate the responsibilities for latent defects for work in place at the time of default. The agreement must specify the terms and method of payment. Uh, the agreement must specify the responsibility for warranty work in place at the time of default. The agreement should address the possibility of liquidated damages and responsibility. The agreement should include a definition of the scope of the work to be assumed. Completion agreement should require the completing contractor to obtain performance and payment bonds. The agreement should specify the insurance that the completing contractor must carry. The completing contractor must indemnify the surety to the same extent that the surety is required to indemnify the obligee under the original contract. Where applicable, the surety should assign the principal subcontractors to uh, the completing contractor. The agreement should specify how change orders are to be addressed between the completion contractor and the surety and between the obligee and the surety. Authority regarding contract administration needs to be settled on in the agreement. There should be provisions regarding assignment and title to materials on site. There should be a clause specifying the manner of delivery for required notices. And there should be a disputes clause that ties in with the obligee's dispute clause uh, and provisions for disputes between the surety and the completion contractor. Uh, by my clock, we've hit our uh, half-hour deadline. I've got there's a couple other things here, but uh, we can post this on, on the website and you can check them out there. For a more detailed and thorough discussion of the surety's takeover performance option, uh, I recommend the ABA FSLC publication, the Bond Default Manual 4th Edition. Chapter 5, authored by uh, Patricia Wager and uh, Chris Ward. Uh, they did a, a very good and thorough uh, job um, addressing takeover as a performance option. Uh, okay, before I open up the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, December 13th. Uh, the Philadelphia Surety Claims will hold its next in-person lunch meeting on November 17th. Uh, the meeting will feature a panel discussion with underwriters from several major surety companies with offices uh, in, in and around the Philadelphia area. We've done that uh, in years past, and it's really a great, a great presentation from those folks. 
you get a lot of, of insight and information. Anyway, thanks for joining me. Well, do we have any questions today? Well, again, uh, thank everybody and uh, look forward to speaking with you again next month. Take care, everyone. Thanks thank for your you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.